This is Nate Hansen and Tim Ritter. We are Almost Heretical. You can find us online at almostheretical.com. Hey friends, welcome to Almost Heretical. This is Nate and I'm not actually going to be on the episode this week, but I did want to jump in and tell you that this episode is a bit different than what we normally do. We wanted our guest, Mark Charles, to come on and share a truer story of the founding of America. And it begins with um, almost a bit of a lecture as Mark lays this all out for us. And we think this is super important. So I just wanted to encourage you to really sit with and process through this all. And without further ado, over to Tim now. It's Tim here. And this week we're starting a new series of conversations on history, specifically American theological history and and recent church history. And super excited to have, uh, I think, one of the most important voices today talking about that subject, uh, Mark Charles, on for an interview. So what we're going to do is uh, is I'm going to interview Mark, and then the next conversation we release next week will be actually Nate listening to that interview and sharing his immediate reflections and us then having a conversation dialoguing some of the really uh, important ideas that Mark brings up. So this week, Mark Charles, he's a guest I've wanted to have on for a long time now. If you don't know Mark, he's a national speaker and writer, mostly pertaining to modern day history. He's author of a popular blog called Reflections from the Hogan, and you can find that on his website, wirelesshogan.com. He recently moved with his family from the Navajo Reservation to Washington, D.C., where he now serves as a correspondent and regular columnist for Native News Online. He's a founding partner of the National Conference for Native Students called Would Jesus Eat Fry Bread? And Mark consults with the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship and has served as a former pastor of the Christian Indian Center in Denver, Colorado. Maybe we can just start, Mark, by you introducing yourself and uh, kind of a bit about your story and what you do. Okay. Well, My name is Mark Charles, and when you introduce yourself, you always give your four clans. And so we're a matrilineal people. And our identities come through our mother's mother. So my mother's mother is American of Dutch heritage. And so in my introduction, I say Tsinbeke Dene, which translated means I'm from the Wooden Shoe people. My second clan, my my father's mother is Toihaglini, which is the waters that flow together. My third clan, my mother's father is also Tsinbeke Dene. Then my fourth clan, my father's father, is Totochitni, and that's the Bitterwater clan. It's one of the original clans of our Navajo people. So I um, moved with my family from uh, the Navajo reservation where we were living for the past decade, and we moved here to Washington, D.C. about three, almost three years ago now. I have been working for seven or eight years really trying to teach and speak about social justice issues from the perspective of Native Americans, as well as working with the church on issues of diversity and contextualized worship and uh, what I would call racial conciliation, uh, which is bringing a, a, a point of healing between the, the different ethnic groups and, and races here in America, as well as in cultures and peoples throughout the world. Yeah. Would you mind sharing a bit kind of about your story in terms of, you know, have you always... Um 
have you always had this this passion and drive to uh, to engage the church, engage uh, culture, and even being in Washington D.C. to try to start a national conversation, or was this kind of a a journey that slowly developed for you? Yeah, so this was a journey that really came out of my engagement with the church about almost 15 years ago now. I was the pastor of a church in Denver called the Christian Indian Center, and one of the dialogues we were engaging with the church was what does it mean to be native and be Christian? How does our native culture, our native languages, our understanding of what is sacred, our perceptions of time affect the way that we worship and know Jesus? And it was through this process of engaging this question with my church that I got connected with indigenous Christians from all over the world. I was a especially working with a group called the World Christian Gathering on Indigenous Peoples. And we were meeting in different countries all around the world every year or so, every couple of years, really sharing stories and trying to understand um, and encourage one another with how we are learning how to contextualize the gospel within our different cultures and within our, our local uh, traditions. That was where I first met Richard Twist and Terry LeBlanc, as well as some other indigenous leaders from different parts of the world. And that was what really spurred me into investigating the question of what does it mean to be Native, specifically to be Navajo and be Christian, which is what we were trying to engage with our church. And after two years of pastoring this church and really engaging the conversation there, my wife and I decided it would be best if we moved back to the reservation. And so we moved um, to a remote section of the Navajo Reservation and uh, lived there in a very remote section, um, six miles off the nearest road on a paved, off the nearest paved road on a dirt road. We were in a one-room hogan, and uh, living with a family that wove rugs and herded sheep for a living. That community was completely off the grid, so there was no running water, no electricity. Uh, our neighbors were rug weavers and sheep herders. And so we moved there for the the experience of understanding the culture and, and my own people in that community. And that was really where I began to experience firsthand some of the very much ongoing marginalization and oppression of Native peoples. And so it was there I began, as I experienced that more and began questioning more, that's when I began looking at more of the history and engaging the role of the church in what had created the situation that our people are living in today. So it sounds like that was almost uh, going back to the reservation was for you kind of uh, getting further in touch with uh, with your heritage, which then kind of took you back even deeper into looking at history and the importance of telling the truth about history. Yeah, what, what we learned very quickly is that by and large... Uh, the only non-natives who come to Indian reservations are those who come to give us charity or those who come to take our picture. Most nobody comes for the purpose of actually building relationship and getting to know us. And so that began feeling that and experiencing that, you know, these wave after wave of white missionaries coming with their cameras and with their uh, little mission organizations and mission visions, but none of them very interested in getting to know us as people. They all loved us as projects, um, but very few uh, wanted to get to know us as people. 
and uh, that that is what opened the door for um, asking some of the deeper questions that I'm engaging with now, which is why why is there this disconnect? Um, why is there this kind of air of superiority coming from white evangelical Christian churches and people? Uh, and then how has the nation kind of been a part of that, bought into that? So yeah, that that was very much, but it was it was the experience of living there and feeling completely cut off both from the church as well as from the nation, even though we were on a reservation in the middle of the country, yet felt like we had kind of dropped off the face of the earth. Mm, wow. So how have you started to answer some of those questions in terms of, you know, what's causing these these issues? What are the solutions? Like, where has that driven you? Well, so the, I mean, we can go all the way back if we want to. You know, when, when you look at this history and you look especially at the teachings of Jesus going back to um, when he was here on earth, he was very clear that... Um, he came here not to create a Christian empire. You know, that was the expectation. The, the people of Israel were under the oppression of the Romans. They were looking for a political messiah, an imperial messiah, who was going to come and restore the fortunes of David, of the kingdom of David. And Jesus had to really kind of change those expectations of what the messiah was going to do. And so he was very intentional about things he did. You know, he was born in a barn. He grew up as a refugee, uh, uh, just lived your, your, your average uh, Jewish life back then. Um, and then even when he came out speaking and when he started teaching, there was still this expectation that if, if he was really going to be the Messiah, he would fill this, this kind of imperial political role. And there's a great story in the Gospels where Jesus is out one day, he's healing widows' sons, he's uh, helping centurion servants, and uh, caring for the poor. And John is hearing reports of this, John the Baptist. And he's so bewildered by this that he sends his disciples to Jesus and say, hey, are you the one who's coming? Or are we supposed to look for someone else? Are we expecting someone else? And Jesus turns around, he heals more six people, he casts out uh, more demons, he gives sight to more of the blind and hearing to more of the deaf. And he turns around and says to John, John's disciples, you know, go back and tell your master what you've just seen. And blessed is the man who, who doesn't stumble on account of me. You know, so Jesus is very clear, he's not here to play this typical political Messiah role that they were looking for. Um, he was here to do something much different. He was here to plant a church. He was here to offer his life as a sacrifice. He was here to make disciples. He was not here in a political role. And so then in the early church, when you joined the church um, in the first, second centuries, you knew that through your baptism, through your confession, through your discipleship, you knew that you were joining this institution, this, this group of people that was standing in opposition to the empire you knew that there was a good chance you were going to be persecuted and probably even killed because of your membership in this church. And then in the third century, when Constantine becomes emperor of Rome, he uh, becomes a Christian, and he and actually his mother decide to 
Christianize Rome. They decide to create Christendom, the, this Christian empire. And this completely changes the understanding of what it means to be the church. Now, instead of joining the church through your baptism, your confession, your discipleship, and your community, now you're a member of the church because of your citizenship in the empire. And so this creates a challenge for the for the the pastors and the the theologians of the day because the empire even the christian empire is doing what empires do which is protecting itself it's defending itself through the act of warfare now a plain text reading of jesus teachings does not allow the citizens of this christian people to go off and kill in the name of christ or kill in the name of their empire Jesus said things like, turn the other cheek and bless those who persecute you and pray for those who, who beat you, you know. And, and so um, the theologians of the day had a choice, which is, are they going to speak prophetically to this Christendom? Are they going to collude with it? And when you look at one of the primary theologians of that day, which was Augustine, and, you know, he begins, I would say, colluding with empire because he begins working on what's called a just war theory. Now, the just war theory plays really two roles. The first role of the just war theory is to fight wars more justly. Now that it's a Christian empire that's going to war, there was a concern about fighting wars that were more just. But the other part of the just war theory was how do you justify Christian people going off and now fighting in the wars of the empire? And so I, I see the, the fact that there is such a thing as a just war theory as evidence that the theologians were not speaking prophetically to the church. They were colluding with it. They were trying to work with it. But I couldn't find the point in... I was, I was looking for the point where Jesus would rebuke the theologians. You know, when, when Jesus is with Peter and Peter tells Jesus, you don't have to die, Jesus calls him Satan. You know, when he's walking out of a Samaritan village and James and John ask, um, should we call down fire on this village that rejected you? Jesus rebukes them. You know, whenever his disciples try to take the way of the empire, take the way of the world, Jesus has very strong words. And so I was sure he would have the strong words for Augustine, but I couldn't find the point, the, the, the quote, kind of the, the smoking gun, if you will, where Augustine is completely off the rails and Jesus would, would turn around and rebuke him. You know, I read through all of his teachings on just war. I looked through his teachings on the two kingdoms. And while Augustine is fairly clear that the kingdom of God is, is our Christendom is not the kingdom of God, he seems to take this attitude of, well, but it's better than being persecuted, so let's try and make it work. But I couldn't find the quote. Again, the quote where Jesus would, would turn and rebuke Augustine. And about nine months ago, I was going to teach at a, a seminary in Vancouver, Canada. And I was looking through some more of Augustine's writings, and I came across his writings on heresy, particularly his book on the correction of the Donatists. And in this book, Augustine is wrestling, in chapter 5, he's wrestling with the question of what is the role of a Christian king in a Christian empire? And in chapter 5, he concludes that the king is to serve the Lord with fear by preventing and chastising with religious severity all those acts which are done in opposition to the commands of the Lord. 
The Christian king in the Christian empire, he writes, serves him by enforcing with suitable rigor such laws as ordain what is righteous and punish what is the reverse. So Augustine's arguing the role of the Christian king in the Christian empire is to enforce the commands of God with severity. In chapter 6, he goes on and he says it's better that men should be led to worship God by teaching than they should be driven to it by fear or punish, of punishment or pain. But many have found advantage, he writes, in first being compelled by fear or pain so that they might afterwards be influenced by teaching. So Augustine's arguing the role of the Christian king in the Christian empire is to use the resources of the state to compel people through fear, punishment, and pain to obey the commands of God, i.e. the church. Hey Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian, I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, he works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. <laughs> um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> I am completely convinced when, when Augustine writes this in Chapter 5 and Chapter 6 of his book on the Correction of the Donuses, Jesus would, without hesitancy, turn around and... If he had no problem calling St. Peter Satan, I'm sure he would have no problem calling out St. Augustine and saying, what are you thinking? This is, you're not even close to what we're supposed to do. You are not on the side of men, of God, but of men. And so this is where, when we have the, the early church colluding with empire, trying to make Christendom work, this is what leads us down the path of, of creating this Christian empire, of of validating this notion, this heretical understanding of what we call Christendom. And so in the, in the 12th century, um, Thomas Aquinas is also writing about heretics. And in his writings, he, he concludes that if the state has the right to kill people who breaks man's laws, how much more right does the church have to kill people who break God's laws? And so he, he's now arguing that the church has the right to kill people who are teaching heresy. And so this, again, is the, the church is completely off the rails. The church is completely acting and thinking like an empire. And so it's out of this that just a few of 100, 150 years later, um, in 1452, Pope Nicholas V writes out the words, invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever. Reduce their persons to perpetual slavery and convert them to his and to their use and profit. So this papal bull, along with other papal bulls written between 1452 and 1493, they collectively become known as what we call the doctrine of discovery. 
The doctrine of discovery is essentially the church in Europe saying to the nations of Europe, wherever you go, whatever lands you find not ruled by white European Christian rulers, those people are less than human, and the land is yours for the taking. So this is literally the doctrine that allows European nations to go into Africa, colonize the continent, and enslave the people. They don't believe them to be human. It's the same doctrine that lets Columbus, who's lost at sea, land in this new world, which is already inhabited by millions, and claim to have discovered it. You, you cannot discover lands already inhabited. It's called stealing. It's called conquering. It's called colonizing. It's not discovery. The fact that to this day we refer to what Columbus did as discovery, this reveals the implicit racial bias of the nation, which is that white people are superior. White supremacy is, is, exists, and everyone else is subhuman or subpar beneath that. And so this is, this is the biggest challenge of this collusion with empire is it allows the church to now, now that it's able to marry itself with empire, now it's able to use all the resources of the state to accomplish its agenda, to do its thing. Um, and so, you know, very clearly the, the doctrine of discovery is a, is a white supremacist doctrine that is the direct fruit, the direct result of the church prostituting itself out to the empire and believing that this, this notion of Christendom is somehow scriptural or biblical or a good thing to have. Now, the challenge is, is this doctrine has been embedded into the foundations of our country. So, our Declaration of Independence 30 lines below the statement, all men are created equal, it refers to natives as merciless Indian savages. Our constitution, which starts with the words, we the people, Article 1, Section 2, just a few sentences later, defining who is and who is not protected by this constitution, who is and who is not a part of this union. Article 1, Section 2, it never mentions women, it specifically excludes natives, and it counts Africans as three-fifths of a person. So when our founding fathers wrote, we the people of the United States, what they meant is white landowning men of the United States in order to form a more perfect union. So what this, what this demonstrates is just like the doctrine of discovery is a white supremacist doctrine, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States are also white supremacist documents. Now, in 1823, we have a Supreme Court case. It's Johnson versus McIntosh. Two men of European descent, they're litigating over a single piece of land. One of them gets the land from a native tribe. The other one gets the same land from the government, and they want to know who owns it. So the case goes all the way to the Supreme Court, and the court has to decide the principle upon which land titles are based. And so they conclude that the principle was that discovery gave title to the government by whose subjects and by whose authority it was made against all other European governments, and that title might be consummated by possession. The Marshall Court is John Marshall's court that's making this ruling. They then go on to reference the doctrine of discovery as a legal instrument, and they conclude now that natives who are here first, but are less than human, we only have what's called aboriginal title 
are the right of occupancy to the land. Like a fish occupies water, a bird occupies air. And Europeans have the fee title to the land, the right of discovery to the land, and therefore they are the true title holders. So this case in 1823 creates the legal precedent for land titles. Now this precedent and the doctrine of discovery get referenced by the court as recently as 1954, 1985, and most recently in 2005. And so what this does is it helps solidify A, the doctrine of discovery, but B, the lie of white supremacy into the foundations, the legal precedents of even our own Supreme Court. And so this now opens up huge ramifications and implications for how the world is, how the country is run and how, how things are decided and, and all of these things. Um, then they're all based on this lie of white supremacy and this notion that America is a Christian empire. that we really have to recognize. So one of the biggest challenges that we have as a nation is that we have, we've never lost a war that matters. You know, we, we've, we've never lost a war that matters. Um, we lost the Vietnam War, but there was no land at stake there, at least for us. Um, we, we lost, um, well, at least the Korean War was inconclusive, but, uh, you know, that wasn't, again, threatening our personal safety and our personal land. Um, and so, as you know, history is written by the victors. And so pretty much all of American history has been written from this, the, the vantage point of the victors. And it's never been kind of readjusted or realigned with the, the, the uh, perspective of someone who's lost a war. And so this creates some challenges. So I want to ask you a question. If I were to ask you, what is the most deadly 24-hour period in world history? What would be your guess? Uh, nuclear bombs in World War II. Okay. So you're guessing Hiroshima? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, actually, that's a good guess, but it's not right. Wow. So Operation Meeting House which actually took place um, a few months before the dropping of the bomb on Hiroshima, was actually the most deadly bombing raid in world history. Um, in nine hours, on the night of March 9 and 10, uh, we dropped, I believe it's nearly 2,000 pounds of incendiary bombs on the city of Tokyo and essentially burned the place to the ground. Um, the estimates, it's very difficult to get estimates of uh, the number of people who died um, in, in some of these bombing raids because the devastation was just so complete and drastic. American estimates are about 100,000 people died. Japanese estimates are about 200,000 people died. Um, Hiroshima, the estimate is about 60,000 people died. Um, the, the U.S. estimate and the Japanese estimate is about 120, 150,000 people died from the direct blast, not from all of the fallout of the people who died later. Um, 
if I were to ask you how many civilians were killed at Pearl Harbor, what would your guess be? A thousand, maybe? Actually, the number is less than 100. Wow. It's uh, between 60 and 70. And most of those civilians died from friendly fire. Wow. It was our anti-aircraft guns firing into the city of Honolulu that killed most of, of, of the citizens. Um, the Japanese actually did not target civilian targets. They avoided hospitals, they avoided neighborhoods, they avoided the city. They, they targeted specifically, specifically military targets. In the nine months coming up to the end of the World War, World War II, we specifically targeted major Japanese cities with Operation Meeting House, with the two nuclear bombs and many other bombing raids. And it's estimated that we killed um, over 300,000 Japanese civilians wow. at the end of World War II. So I, what I'm doing is I'm, I'm giving you a perspective of what is it what does it mean that the victors write the history books? Right. You know, we don't even know what our most, what the most globally deadly bombing <laughs> in the world is because we did it. And, um, you know, it, it's not even what we think it was. It wasn't Hiroshima. It was Operation Meeting House in Tokyo. Um, there's this perception that the, the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor, well, it was, it was, very a bad bad thing i mean it was, it was a, a, an act of war but it was not a target of civilian targets it was a target of military targets um but again because history is written by the victors we don't talk about these things we don't say these things mm -hmm. and so how would you imagine history would teach the holocaust had germany won the war okay what what would the reputation of hitler be and how would we teach the Holocaust had Germany won the war? How would Germany teach this history? Yeah, I imagine it'd be like this, this great uh, expansion, this national expansion of Germany uh, that was deemed justified and kind of this glorious high point. Yeah, you're probably very correct. There would probably be this great glorification, even deification of Adolf Hitler. And we would know very few, if any, of the details about what actually happened um, to the Holocaust victims. Hmm. So now if I were to ask you, who would you say is the most white supremacist and genocidal president in American history? What would your answer be? I think I know because I've, I've been following your, uh, <laughs> your work lately. I think you maybe make a case for Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, so let me, let me tell you some history that most people are not aware of with Abraham Lincoln. So we refer to Abraham Lincoln as the great emancipator, the great unifier. He won the Civil War. He abolished slavery. Um, he's, his face is uh, carved into Mount Rushmore, the, uh, the Lincoln Memorial here in Washington, D.C., is one of the most majestic and largest memorials we have. It's actually modeled after um, the temple in Athens to the Greek goddess of Athena in Greece. And, uh, but we, we don't know the history of Abraham Lincoln. So in 1858, 
Abraham Lincoln was in a brutal Senate campaign with Judge Stephen Douglas. And Abraham Lincoln was running against Stephen Douglas as well as against his perception that he was for freeing the slaves. And so early in those debates, he was giving a speech and he, he wrote in this speech um, that I will say while I'm on this subject, I have no purpose directly or indirectly to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. I have no purpose to introduce political and social equality between the white and black races. There is a physical difference between the two, which in my judgment will probably forever forbid their living together on the footing of perfect equality. And inasmuch as it becomes a necessity, there must be a difference. I, as well as Judge Douglas, am in favor of the race to which I belong, having the superior position. Just a few weeks later, in the fourth debate with Judge Douglas, he repeats himself almost verbatim. I will say then that I am not nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. I am not nor ever have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say in addition to this that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two living in terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot so live, while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. So he's very clearly, so he and Judge Douglas do not disagree on white supremacy. They both agree on white supremacy. They disagree on slavery. Do we need it or do we not? Judge Douglas is actually in favor of having slavery, and Abraham Lincoln is opposed to it. But they don't disagree on white supremacy. They both get cheers from the audience by um, affirming white supremacy. They both get laughs from the audience by preposterously um, suggesting that maybe blacks might be equal to white people. And so they don't disagree on white supremacy. Now, I just learned this this week. This is fascinating. In 1861, Right after his inauguration, right after his election, there was a threat from the southern states of, of secession or secession from the Union because they were afraid of what Abraham Lincoln was going to do to slaves. And so the Congress was actually in, a, in kind of working hard to avert both the secession of the southern states as well as civil war. And on the morning of his inauguration, the U.S. Congress passed what's called um, the Corwin Amendment. The Corwin Amendment essentially is an amendment to constitutionally protect slavery in the states where it already exists. Um, and so the Senate passes that amendment like 5.30 in the morning on Inauguration Day. And uh, it's so crucial to them that actually James Buchanan, the outgoing president, signed it, even though as president he has no part of the amendment process, but he signed it to show he supports it as an outgoing Democratic president. And then in his inaugural address, Abraham Lincoln mentions this amendment and says that he is not opposed to irrevocably protecting slavery in the Constitution. 
And so this is fascinating because on the day of his inauguration, he states that he is not opposed to constitutionally protecting slavery in the states where it already exists. And a few days later, about a week and a half later, he actually mails out, even though it's not his job, the, 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 the registrar, the, the, um, the, 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 someone within the office of the archives, the archivist actually sends out, is supposed to send out these letters. But Abraham Lincoln personally sends out letters to all the govern, governors with this um, amendment asking for them to ratify it. Um, and so the, this, is, this is a very, very interesting piece of his history. And then in 1862, he signs the Homestead Act. The Homestead Act opens up um, land, up to 160 acres of land for any citizen who goes out and is willing to homestead the land in the West for up to five years. And he also signs in July of 1862 the Pacific Railway Act. The Pacific Railway Act is the act that um, completes Manifest Destiny. It, it completes the transcontinental railway and the transcontinental telegraph lines, which had so far made it to Omaha, Nebraska, and it provides the land and the funding for this to go all the way to the Pacific Coast. In 1862... Horace Greeley writes an op-ed. He's the editor of the New York Tribune. He writes a letter demanding the immediate emancipation of the slaves. Now, Lincoln already has this letter in his desk. The Emancipation Proclamation is already written in his desk, but he's not ready to release it yet because he's concerned about the four southern states that have not seceded from the Union, but they allow slavery. This is, um, this is uh, Missouri, Kentucky... Maryland and Delaware. And so he responds to Horace Greeley by stating um, that my paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union. It is not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union, writes Abraham Lincoln, without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save the Union by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. And so he, he basically responds by saying, black lives don't matter in this thing. I'm trying to save the union. It's not that black lives have any value or they matter. I'll do whatever needs to be done to them as long as we can preserve the union. Now that quote is hanging on a marble plaque in the base of the Lincoln Memorial right here in Washington, D.C. In January of 1863, um, he, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation goes into effect. And it frees the states. It's very specific if you read the Emancipation Proclamation as to where it frees the, state, the slaves. It frees them in Arkansas, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia. It does not free them in Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, and Delaware. Any state that's not listed in here, it says they are, the exempted parts are for the present left precisely as if this proclamation were not issued. And so he does not free the slaves in these four northern states that allow slavery but have not seceded from the Union. And in fact, the slaves in those states do not get their freedom until after Lincoln dies.
now Lincoln has already signed the Pacific Railway Act. And the railway is proposed to go through, there's three proposed routes, early routes of the Pacific Railway. The northern route starts in Duluth, Minnesota and goes um, through Minnesota and, and the Idaho and the, well, these other states up here to the Pacific Northwest. The southern route um, starts in uh, Omaha, Nebraska and goes through northern Colorado, southern Wyoming, and over to the central coast. And then the, or that's the central route. And then the southern route goes through the territory of New Mexico. Now, beginning in 1862, we have the largest mass execution in the history of our nation with the hanging of the Dakota 38 because of the Dakota War. And then in February of 63, Abraham Lincoln um, revokes all of the treaties with the tribes in Minnesota and begins the process of removing all of the natives from Minnesota into the territories of the Dakotas outside the states. That process goes from April of 63 and is finished by August of 63. In the fall of 63, his general, General Carleton, gives an order to Kit Carson in the territory of New Mexico to kill every Navajo on site. And they, they go through our land, they burn our crops, they destroy our homes, they kill our livestock, and they chase us around our land in New Mexico. Um, and then when winter comes, they tell us to report to Fort Wingate. And then in um, January of 1864, Abraham Lincoln approves the creation of Bosque which is the reservation, but actually the death camp that our people were marched to in what is known as the Long Walk. And over the next year, year and a half, 10,000 Navajo people are marched from our traditional lands in the Four Corners area today down to um, Fort Sumner, Bosque in the southern part of the territory of New Mexico and a quarter of our people die while living in this camp, while being imprisoned in this camp. Um, nothing grows down there. There's alkali in the sand. Uh, we're, we're given scraps that aren't even fit for the soldiers to eat. There's no, there's no vegetation to, to build fires. There's no way to farm. Um, and over 2,300 of our people die while imprisoned in this camp. And then in 64, General Shivington, again of the U.S. Army, comes across a, an encampment of Cheyenne and Arapaho people in uh, Colorado, and he massacres all of them. And within a year and a half after that massacre, Abraham, or the, 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 the Cheyenne Arapaho are completely removed from Colorado and put on a reservation in Oklahoma. And so within two and a half years of signing the Pacific Railway Act, Abraham Lincoln has ethnically cleansed all of the natives from Minnesota, all of the natives from Colorado, and all the natives from uh, the territory of New Mexico. And then, at the end of his life, his final legacy is the passing of the 13th Amendment, which is the amendment everyone believes abolishes slavery. But this takes us back, actually, to understand the 13th Amendment, you really have to understand the, the agreement and the disagreement between Lincoln 
and Douglas in the Douglas-Lincoln debates in 58. And so as I said earlier, both Lincoln and Douglas agree in white supremacy. They both agree whites are superior, blacks are inferior. They disagree on the institution of slavery. And so Judge Douglas, when, when Lincoln is, is adamant about ending slavery, Judge Douglas accuses him of applying the Declaration of Independence to the black race. And Abraham Lincoln replies and says, I think the authors of that notable instrument intended to include all men, but they did not mean to declare all men equal in all respects. They did not mean to say that all men were equal in color, size, intellect, moral development, or social capacity. Now, it's important to remember that Abraham Lincoln isn't talking about individual men here. He's talking about races. So he is saying the white race and the black race are not equal in color, size, intellect, moral development, or social capacity. Stephen Douglas then later accuses Lincoln of wanting to make citizens of black people. And in the debates, Abraham Lincoln replies and says, um, uh, Judge Douglas has never asked me this question before, but he shall have no occasion to ever ask it again, for I will tell him very frankly that I am not in favor of Negro citizenship. In my opinion, is now, now my opinion is that the different states have the power to make a Negro a citizen under the Constitution of the U.S., if they choose. But if the state of Illinois had that power, I should be opposed to the exercise of it. That is all I have to say about that. So Abraham Lincoln is opposed to making black people citizens. He's already supported an amendment to constitutionally protect slavery in the states where it already exists in 61. He does not free all the slaves during the Emancipation Proclamation. And he's ethnically cleansed native peoples and committed genocide to make way for the completion of Manifest Destiny. And so now, with the passing of the 13th Amendment, most people believe the 13th Amendment abolishes slavery. But if you actually read it, what it says is, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So have we abolished slavery? No. Where is slavery still legal? in prison. See, this was Lincoln's solution. He didn't believe in the equality of the races, but he was not in support of the, of the deplorable institution of slavery. But it wasn't because black lives mattered. It's because it, it probably reflected bad on white people, this, this, this grotesque institution. And so he has a dilemma, which is he, he doesn't want the institution of slavery, but nor does he want black people to be citizens. And so how do you thread that needle? What do you do? Well, the 13th Amendment is his solution. You create a second tier level of citizenship for black people by never abolishing slavery, but leaving it up to the courts the criminal justice system, law enforcement officers, they can now remove the rights of citizenship from people of color at a whim. Hmm. So today, the United States of America has the highest incarceration rates of any country in the world. 
For every 100,000 of our citizens, we incarcerate 693 of them. Hmm. It's 110 higher than the next highest nation, Kirkmanistan at 583. And when you break those numbers out by race, it's even worse. We incarcerate Hispanic people at a rate of 831 per 100,000, natives at a rate of 895 per 100,000, and black people are incarcerated at a rate of 2,306 per, per 100,000. White people, meanwhile, are incarcerated at a rate of 450. So mass incarceration was Lincoln's solution to what do you do with black people who you don't want to have the institution of slavery anymore, but you don't want to make them full citizens. And I think he would be very proud of how Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton figured out a way to just skyrocket the percentage of people of color who are in our prison systems. And so, so again, this is, <laughs> this is the challenge we have with Abraham Lincoln, which is he's actually given us the tools that we're using today to keep people of color oppressed and marginalized and completely on edge within our, within our society, within our nation. You know, when it was just, it was a week and a half ago when we had this, this situation at a Starbucks in Philadelphia where a woman who I'm not convinced was not racist. I mean, I, I, I <laughs> she said she didn't intend for the people to be arrested, but I'm not convinced she didn't have some implicit racial bias um, in her, um, based on the stuff I've read. But two black men walk into her Starbucks store and they ask to use the bathroom. She tells them the bathroom is only for paying customers. They sit down, they're waiting for a meeting. She calls 911 and reports them and the police walk in. They ask the men three times politely to leave. Now, these African-American men are in an impossible situation here because the fact that it was merely 60, 70 years ago that they could be arrested just for sitting in an establishment that was not meant for black people. And so when the cops come in and ask them to leave, this is now not just about what are we doing in Starbucks today. This is about this nation has a history of excluding back black people from businesses and from social public settings because of the color of their skin and race. And so the, the, <laughs> they are in an impossible situation. They cannot just get up and walk out. And A, because this whole history is behind them, and B, they've done nothing wrong. They merely came in, they're waiting for a meeting, and everyone goes into Starbucks to wait. And so the officers arrest them. The problem with that, and everyone's, you know, we need to boycott Starbucks, we need to better train the police, we need to, no, this, this is not, the, the better training and, and more, more diversity training for the Starbucks employees or for the police department is not going to solve this problem. The problem is we have a white supremacist system, and so, and it worked perfectly. A white woman was afraid, she didn't like two black men in her establishment, so she called the cops, and they came and arrested them. The system worked exactly the way Abraham Lincoln designed it to work. This, this is the problem that we have to address. This is what we have to fix. And so now this calls into question, why is Lincoln our greatest president? He clearly did not believe in equality. 
he clearly had no problem with the institution of slavery. He clearly did not think natives were people and had no problem committing genocide against us. So why do we lift him up as this great emancipator, as this beacon of equality and freedom? You know, we, we teach the history of Abraham Lincoln like he is somehow the savior of people of color. He is the one who, who freed slaves. He is the one who, who brought about the notion of equality. I, I would disagree with that. What Lincoln did is he threaded the needle. He unified white people under the umbrella of white supremacy and gave white America the tools that they're still using today, 150 years later, to keep people of color oppressed. We credit him for winning the Civil War, but that's not the war he won. The real war that he won, the Civil War was an internal squabble over the institution of slavery. It wasn't about equality. White supremacy was, was clear. That was not what was called into question. So the, the Civil War was an internal squabble. The real war that he won was the War of Manifest Destiny. He completed the Transcontinental Railway. He ethnically cleansed the tribe from Minnesota, Colorado, and New Mexico, the blocks to completing Manifest Destiny. These, this is the war that Lincoln really won. And so just like we speculated earlier, how would history have taught Adolf Hitler had he won World War II? We have to wrestle with the exact same question of how do we teach Abraham Lincoln? Hmm. The challenges, the biggest challenge is not that we can so easily compare Lincoln to Hitler. The biggest challenge is that we are not dissimilar from Nazi Germany as a nation. We have a white supremacist doctrine of discovery. We have a white supremacist declaration of independence. We have a white supremacist constitution. And we have white supremacist Supreme Court case precedents. We believe in our notion of manifest destiny, that we are God's chosen people, and this is Europeans, Europe's promised land. And we hold up as our greatest leader one of the most white supremacist and ethnic cleansing people of our history. We've engraved his face on a sacred mountain to native peoples in the Dakotas, and we've built a temple to him in the city, our capital of Washington, D.C. This is what we have to face as a nation. Why do we celebrate this man who did deplorable things to people of color and gave us the systemic tools that we're still using today to keep people of color incarcerated. us understand mark how how do we face it how do we even you know listen to this story acknowledge the the truth in this story you know you may make the comparison between uh, america and, and nazi germany and you know one thing i don't think people point out very often about nazi germany is we like to tell the story of people like dietrich bonhoeffer who were christians that pushed back on nazi germany but we we fail to mention that Nazi Germany was propped up largely by German Christians 
And I think you can largely say the same thing today that this, I think a lot of us like to tell the story that these atrocities in American history were something the church did to undo, as in that the church was the savior within the system. And the reality is, is probably more that the church itself was colluding with the system, propping up the system. So especially as, as Christians, like, what do we do? How do we uh, reconcile our history? How do we move forward? So the, the thing that I'm calling the church to is we have to understand our complicity in the problems that were created. We have to understand our role in what what's happened. And one of the best tools that we, we have that God's given us to, to do this is the tool of lament. And so I'm actually, I'm calling the church everywhere I go into a process of lament. Um, my, I, I'm writing a book on the Doctrine of Discovery. My co-author is Sing Chan Ra, and uh, he published a book just a few, a couple years ago called A Prophetic Lament. And in his book, he lays out one of the one of the characteristics of lament, he says, is it's like being at a funeral dirge. You have a dead body in the casket, and it's not coming back to life. The only reason you're at the funeral, the reason you're there is to weep, is to say goodbye, is to, is to mourn this loss. The church has literally thousands of years of dead bodies and caskets. The American church, with the doctrine of discovery, has hundreds of years of dead bodies and caskets. They're not going to come back to life. They're, they're not, this isn't going to be fixed. The only thing we can do, the only place that we can start is through the process of lament, through the process of weeping over this broken history. Now, when you, when you look at the, 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 the process of lament in the scriptures, whenever the people of God lament, he always shows up. God always shows up when his people lament. He doesn't come quickly, but he does show up. Now, the challenge, because the American church is so poor at lament, is that we maybe sing a song of lament. We maybe have a service of lament, but we do not stay in lament very long at all. Even if you have a, a, a portion of your service for lament, you will almost 99.9% .9 of the time end that service with some kind of hope some kind of, of way to walk out of this space. Because we don't like to stay in a space of lament because it's difficult to lament when you believe in your own exceptionalism. And so what I'm calling the church into is I'm saying we, are, we do not need a song of lament. We don't need a service of lament. We don't even need a period of, of lament. We need a season of lament. And I use the word season because who changes the seasons? God does. God put the seasons in order. God is the one who, who decides when it's going to switch from summer to fall to winter to spring. And so we need to go into a season of lament and stay there long enough for God to show up, which I'm convinced I know he will. And then he can lead us out of this lament into a place of healing. And so my call to the church is, you know, I, I'm working. I, I, I deeply believe, based on this history I've taught, that the United States of America needs a national dialogue on race, gender, and class. A conversation that's on par with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that took place in South Africa, Rwanda, and Canada. 
I don't call it truth and reconciliation because reconciliation implies a previous harmony and that never existed here. I call it truth and conciliation. Conciliation is merely the mediation of a dispute. Our nation doesn't need racial reconciliation. We need racial conciliation. We need to just have a better relationship between the diverse group of peoples who are here. And so I am working towards a National Truth and Conciliation Commission, and my goal is 2021. I'm convinced we need this dialogue sooner rather than later, and so I'm working towards calling people into this. And, and the stuff I just presented to you on Lincoln is really one of the most important parts of this, I think. Because this, by understanding the history of Lincoln and understanding how deeply we celebrate him as a nation, if we can truly acknowledge what he stood for and the things he actually did, it can help us understand how deep our problems are. The fact that we are celebrating this genocidal white supremacist man who didn't give a crap about black lives and had no problem ethnically cleansing and committing genocide against native peoples. And yet we hold him up, not just as a good president, as one of our greatest, if not the greatest president. Clearly we have a problem. And so I've, I've been using this, I've been doing this research on Lincoln for probably the past four, three or four months. And I found it, it's one of the best tools to help people understand how deep our problem is and how desperately we are in a place where we need to address it. Um, and so I'm, I'm working on this and my goal is 2021. I'm, I'm convinced we need this dialogue sooner rather than later. Hmm. There uh, two other ideas that I've heard you talk about that I, I found really profound and helpful. I'd love if you could just briefly uh, explain what you mean by them. The first is collective memory and our need for a collective memory. And the second one is is trauma and thinking about uh, especially uh, what white America is experiencing as a kind of trauma. Yeah, so um, there's an Aboriginal leader named George Erasmus. And he says, where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. Where communities to be formed, common memory must first be created. This is a very wise um, understanding. And I'm convinced this quote gets to the heart of our nation's problem with the race, which is, we don't have a common memory. White America remembers this history of discovery, opportunity, expansion and exceptionalism and our communities of color have the lived experience of stolen lands broken treaties slavery mass incarceration jim crow laws lynchings boarding schools genocides massacres internment camps and there's no common memory and so I, i'm working very hard to to uh this is what this is where I'm calling for a truth and conciliation commission to create this common memory to acknowledge this past of our history and find a way to move forward and build into a better future. Now to to prep this dialogue there's really three or four different audiences I'm trying to prepare for this conversation. The first audience is the church. And you've already heard my message to the church which is we need to acknowledge our complicity in this history and lament it. My next message is to Native peoples. 
And my message to our people is that we have to understand we are the not we are not the helpless victims of an oppressive colonial government, but we are the host people of the land. And we have to conduct ourselves as the hosts. I love what happened at Standing Rock a year and a half ago. I love the fact that we had hundreds of tribes, tens of thousands of Native peoples coming together, committed to prayer, to ceremony, to peaceful resistance, and to communicating as one voice to this nation of undocumented immigrants that you cannot drink oil and water is life. I saw that Standing Rock movement as a great example of our people playing into our role as the hosts of this land. My other group of people I'm trying to to speak to about this is people of color. And my message to people of color is about trauma. So most people understand PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. This is, it's it's an individual diagnosis for someone who's experienced a horrifying event. It affects you emotionally, relationally, physically, mentally. It's kind of this all-encompassing condition, but it's an individual diagnosis. So uh, a soldier returning from the battlefield may have PTSD. The survivor of an accident may have PTSD. The survival of abuse or or some other kind of attack may come out with some PTSD, some post-traumatic stress, and even a post-traumatic stress disorder that will have this all-encompassing impact upon them. Now, there's another trauma that is being researched, and that trauma is called historical trauma. So historical trauma is not an individual diagnosis. It's actually how psychologists understand the the dissatisfaction in a broader community. It was developed to understand the dissatisfaction in Native communities. Um, And and it's been proven that it's, it's passed down from one generation to the next. So the trauma doesn't end with the generation that was traumatized, but it actually gets passed down from one generation to the next. And so when you look at the symptoms of historical trauma, you can see it very clearly in Native communities, but you also see it clearly in African American communities and Jewish communities and Japanese American communities and other communities that have been historically oppressed. So I refer to historical trauma because it's not an individual diagnosis. It's a communal diagnosis. So I refer to historical trauma as a multi-generational communal manifestation of PTSD. So you have PTSD at an individual level and you have historical trauma at a communal multi-generational level. And so if you are going to go in and engage this dialogue on race, on history, on common memory, and you go into a native community, you come to our reservation and try to talk about this, if you do not understand our historical trauma, you are going to get reactions and and responses that you are not prepared for, and it's going to sidetrack or even derail you. If you try to go into inner city communities, African American, other minority communities, and try to engage a a dialogue on race and, and oppression and healing from slavery, and you don't understand the historical trauma of those communities, you are going to get reactions you don't understand. Just like if you try to go to engage a dialogue with a boarding school survivor or someone who's been incarcerated and you don't understand their PTSD, you're going to get reactions, responses you're not prepared for. And so part of this is I want to to train people of color that to engage these dialogues with our communities, we have to understand the trauma of our community. 
we have to understand the historical trauma as well as the post-traumatic stress that's experienced both communally and personally within individually within our communities. Now, there's another trauma that most people are not aware of, and this trauma is called PITS, Perpetration-Induced Traumatic Stress. Rachel McNair, a psychologist, wrote a book on this in 2002, and she identifies that PITS is like PTSD in every way, shape, and form except if PTSD afflicts the victims of a horrifying event, PITS afflicts the perpetrators. It's a perpetration-induced traumatic stress. And so what she's arguing is that not only do victims of horrifying events have this emotional trauma that they have to work through, but the perpetrators of these same events have their own issues that they have to work through as well. She actually uses this quote by Socrates, who says, the doer of injustice is more miserable than the sufferer. And she looks very closely at this comprehensive study on Vietnam veterans. And so I now hypothesize that if PTSD has a multi-generational communal manifestation that we refer to as historical trauma, it would make sense to me that Pitts would also have a multi-generational communal manifestation, which is what I identify is the trauma that's afflicting white Americans. Because you cannot build a nation on 500 years of dehumanizing injustice without traumatizing yourself. And so I interact with white America as another group of traumatized people. Now, I'm not trying to convince them they're traumatized. I'm not trying to to uh, get them to understand their trauma. I just treat white Americans as traumatized. So when you understand white Americans as another group of traumatized people, it's easy to see their symptoms. The first symptom of trauma is shock and denial. So the fact that most people have no idea this history of Abraham Lincoln, this is denial. The fact that most people have no idea what native tribe was ethnically cleansed from the land their house resides on today this is their denial. This is their, they, they, they're, they're not, they don't know how to acknowledge this stuff. And so when we understand white America as another group of traumatized people, we can easily see their symptoms. Uh, there was a buried apology to Native peoples by the U.S. Congress in 2009. It was never mentioned publicly by the White House or by Congress. This isn't racism that this was buried. This is trauma. Congress was so ashamed by what they did, they couldn't even acknowledge it. We have Texas and Oklahoma today passing laws you can only teach patriotic history. This isn't racism, this is trauma. These states are so ashamed by what they did to become who they are, they can't even teach it anymore. Now, when you deal with trauma patients, trauma patients have what are called triggers. A trigger is a sight, a sound, a smell, something that takes you out of reality and back into the chaos of the moment of when the trauma occurred. So... On an individual level, when you go to a counselor, and for most trauma patients, especially those who are still in the early stages of shock and denial, you are not aware that you are traumatized. But everyone around you knows that there's something deeper going on. And so usually they'll encourage you to go to counseling, or maybe you'll be self-aware enough that you have to go to counseling and get some help to talk through some issues. And so if, but if, you, if a counselor has a patient who is not aware that they are traumatized, they are looking for the triggers of what, what is it that triggers this patient? What is it that, that 
makes even if it's a, an irrational connection between the their current reality and this trauma that's occurred to them in the past and so when we understand white america as another group of traumatized people it's very easy to see their triggers so eight years of a black president was a trigger white america the white supremacist america did not know what to do with the optic of a black man that their foundations stated wasn't even human. They didn't know what to do with the optic of a black man governing from this office that was only for white people. Eight years of a black president triggered white America. Without President Obama, we never get Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a triggered reaction to eight years of a black president. Donald Trump is white America's response to a black man sitting in the Oval Office. Any sort of national dialogue on immigration or gun control is a trigger. White America does not know how to have this conversation without screaming at one another. Even if you look at some of the, some of the things that are being said, I, um, um, Rick Santorum, I think it was, after this, this uh, I, I said his name wrong, but anyway, after, after uh, the the shooting in Florida, the Parkdale shooting, um, and the, the students went to D.C. and they held a rally. And hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people showed up for this rally. And he was doing an interview on, on, on the Sunday news shows after this rally. And he was saying, you know, it's nice that they did this thing, but they are not taking responsibility. They are, they are coming here and asking Congress to do something, and they're not taking responsibility for these things themselves. You know, rather than coming here and lobbying Congress, they should go home and learn CPR so they can help their friends who are being shot. Now, if you know CPR and you have a, sh a shooting victim, I don't think giving them CPR is going to help them. You know, you don't want to pump more blood through their veins as they're bleeding profusely. But anyway, this is, this is, this is an insane reaction from a, a man, a leader, a national political leader. Clearly, this is, you know, this triggered something in him. He doesn't even speak sensibly about this anymore. And so the last trigger is I, I refer to ISIS as a trigger. Now, why is ISIS a trigger? Well, they're a group of religious zealots ethnically cleansing a land to set up their own pseudo-religious empire. Who does that sound like? That's the history of this nation. This is why... There's a bombing in Paris, there's a bombing in, in London, and white America makes it all about them. That reflection is way too familiar. They don't know what to do with that. So one of the things that, that we need is it's so helpful just to understand white America is another group of traumatized people. So the challenge we have in our nation is in almost every racial dialogue, white Americans are put in one of two categories. Either they're racist or they're fragile. So if white Americans are racist, if you're racist just because of the color of your skin, then that means there's no room for you in the conversation, and that's not helpful. If white Americans are fragile, which means we have to walk around them on eggshells, soothe everything over, that's not helpful either. We're never going to get to the bottom of the issue, the, to the heart of the problem. By understanding white Americans as traumatized, it allows us to, to respond as people of color, to respond better to their reactions, to their triggers to keep the conversation on course. If I understand that 
white America is traumatized and when we talk about this history, it triggers them and they begin yelling or screaming or carrying on or something else. If I understand they don't hate me because they're racist or, they're, or I have to soothe it over because they're fragile, if I can actually play the role of counselor in the interaction and, and drill down deeper to the heart of the issue, we can actually move the conversation forward. Now, I have to be very clear, white Americans, while I am uh, identifying they are experiencing trauma, it's very important to note white Americans are not victims of trauma. This is a multi-generational communal manifestation of perpetration-induced traumatic stress, the trauma that comes from the perpetration of a horrifying event. And so I, I have to be very clear because many times white Americans will hear me say this and say, oh, it's so good to hear we're victims too. No, you're not victims. <laughs> this is not, you are not the victims of trauma. You experience trauma, but the trauma you're experiencing comes from the fact that you are a part of the group that perpetrated this history. And the, 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 the benefits that, that you enjoy come not because it's a privilege. It's not white privilege. It's white supremacy. You are benefited not because you have privilege as a white person. You are benefited because there's the, the notion of the abhorrent lie of white supremacy built into the foundations of our documents. And so I have to be very clear on that. But I found this, this understanding of, of white America as another group of traumatized people by interacting with white Americans, by treating them as traumatized, it actually allows me to engage the conversation down to a much deeper level. And it's probably one of the most effective tools I've had in, in not allowing this conversation to be hijacked or be distracted from because of, of the outbursts that will typically and frequently come from white Americans. Yeah, totally. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to share all this here on the podcast. And just thanks for your life work. Uh, I can only imagine how exhausting or frustrating uh, it can be at times, but I guess I just want to say keep it up and, uh, yeah, keep going. Well, thank you very much. It was good to be on your show. And you can always find more of my writings and videos of my presentations and um, the work that I'm doing on my website, which is wirelesshogan.com, W-I-R-E-L-E-S-S-H-O-G-A-N.com. And you can also find me on social media, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, my username on all of social media is Wireless Hogan. You'll never bleed unless you grow. Now I, I see what you need. Okay, thanks for being with us this week on Almost Heretical. Tune in next week. Nate and I are going to kick off a whole series of conversations largely in response to what Mark brought up here and uh, exploring some of these ideas in even more detail. We've gotten a lot of really great feedback lately that we appreciate, so keep it up. Love to hear from you guys. You can always email us at contact at almostheretical.com or feel free to reach out on Twitter or Facebook. See you next week. Is all that Followed hard decision, followed hard discussion.